preparing for this uh, Sunday, and I, I didn't know exactly why I was so nervous. And yesterday I had the opportunity to uh, spend some time with Daniel and Pam as they're preparing for their wedding this coming Saturday. And in the midst of our time together, I realized why I was nervous for today. Um, it brought, brought my memory to um, when I first proposed to Serene over 12 years ago. And um, I remember just the anxiety and the fear that was in my heart as I was proposing to Serene and committing my life to her as she was committing her life to me. And you know what they say in weddings, you know, richer or for poorer, better or for worse, sickness and in health, till death there was part. It was that kind of heart. We don't know what's ahead of us, but we want to cement, solidify our commitment together to see what God has for us, um, for our family. And so that was a real daunting thing to kind of experience in one moment. Well, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that this morning. Uh, we all love Christ together. We all love Cornerstone. But today, Commitment Sunday, we're cementing that heart. We are each of us have made a commitment. You know, we're putting our all chips in. We're putting our name in the box. What other metaphors can I use, right? <laughs> we're um, we're committing ourselves together, and we don't know. You know, what's ahead of us? It could be, you know, you know, a nice church in central Orange County, or it could be Bell Intermediate for the next 20 years. We don't know, but just that sense of committing together is great joy and also just great sense of excitement and also, you know, worry, just trusting the Lord uh, and depending on Him on what God will provide for us. We're very thankful for all of you and uh, we look forward to um, God's sovereign plan being revealed before our eyes and seeing his faithfulness displayed in our, in our little church. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> and um, as a way of reminder, read verses 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 reads, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul presents before the Corinthians the example of the churches in Macedonia. And he is not exalting them. He's exalting the grace of God that is operating within them. The grace that has saved them is continued to work in their lives. And the fruit of God's grace is their generosity and their stewardship, their giving. We studied, we discovered together the seven characteristics, the seven traits of giving that is fueled by God's grace. Their giving is not prompted by human obligation, It's not by a hidden agenda, not compulsion, not manipulation. These Macedonian believers were fueled in their generosity because of the grace of God that they found the cross of Christ. They were so moved by Christ's example, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that we might be spiritually rich. It fueled them to give. So Paul displays before them, for the sake of their edification, the example of the Macedonians, and therefore it's an example to us and benefits us, uh, warrants our attention. As a way of review, go through them very briefly. First, we discovered that grace-motivated giving is done even in the midst of afflictions and poverty. Right, so if grace is in your heart, nothing can keep you, hinder you from pursuing Christ Nothing can keep you from sacrificing and giving to the Lord. In fact, 
suffering, affliction, and poverty aids us in our pursuit of Christ. It is prosperity. It is comfort. It is peace. It's success. Those things that are things that we should be afraid of because those things hinder us in our pursuit of Christ. But in fact, affliction aids us, prompts us all the more if we are activated by grace. And that was the example of the Macedonian Christians. They did not wait for this perfect time to give. They did not wait for a time of peace and tranquility or a time of prosperity where they will start obeying the Lord. Now, they were in a difficult state, and yet grace, he that is in them, is greater than he that is in the world. Grace caused them to rise above their circumstances and motivated them to give. Secondly, grace motivated giving is done with abundance of joy. Verse 2, they were abounding in joy, abundance overflowing with joy. There was no grumbling in their hearts, no complaining. Just like what Mike and the praise team sang, in thy service, pain is pleasure. And that's the Christian's like heart cry. That's our, our, our preaching of our lives that outwardly it is suffering, it is sacrifice. But when we're doing it for Christ, pain is actually pleasure. Serving, sacrificing, giving is joy. And so the Macedonian Christians modeled that. They got that from Paul. How he was sorrowful but full of joy. Where did Paul get that from? He got it from Christ. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So as Christ was under agonizing suffering, going to the cross, going to Calvary, in his heart there was abundance of joy because he was pleasing the Father. That's the second mark of grace motivated giving. Third is that it is overflowing with generosity beyond their ability, beyond their means they gave. They're overflowing with generosity. Fourthly, it is proportional. It is not mindless giving. It is not spontaneous. It is it's not unwise. It is proportional. It's not a percentage. But it's according to your means. And everybody's means is different. It's according to one's means. They, they understand their needs, what God has provided. And in light of that, they give on to the Lord. Fifthly, it is sacrificial. Grace-motivated giving prompts the believer to want to sacrifice. Just like what David said when he was sacrificed to the Lord, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I, it's got to it's gotta make me uncomfortable. I've I got to feel it. It's got to cost me something. If I give God leftovers, that which I do not have any use for, that, that which I do not value, that's not... What God gave to me, what God gave to me in the cross was His only Son, His most valuable quote-unquote possession. So my response must be something that I value as well. To be in some way and measure worthy of the gospel by which I was saved, by the cost that God incurred in giving me salvation. Sixthly, grace-motivated giving is voluntary, verses 3 and 4. It was out of their own free will. In fact, they were begging us, verse 4, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See, Paul asked the churches in Achaia, like the churches in Corinth, to participate in this um, opportunity of giving. But he didn't ask the churches in Macedonia because of their difficult financial state. But you know how Christians are, word of mouth, right? It just spreads like wildfire. And so the Macedonian Christians heard about this giving that was taking place, this collection that was taking place among all the churches for Christians in Jerusalem who were going through difficulty. And they went to Paul and said, Hey, Paul, you forgot about us. You told all the churches about this opportunity except us. Why are we not involved in this opportunity to give? And Paul said, Because you guys are in a midst of poverty and persecution. We didn't want to further burden you. And they said, Paul, don't like treat us like children. Don't take away our opportunity to give because we're not giving to you. We're not giving to the churches in Jerusalem. Ultimately, we're giving to the Lord for ourselves, for our to store of treasures in heaven. Do not deprive us of this ministry. So they begged Paul. They 
prevailed upon him to give. It was voluntary. And finally, grace-motivated giving is done out of prior giving oneself to God. So that's why for the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 2, Titus began this work over a year ago. So Titus began, he went and he taught them, he, he equipped them, he informed them about stewardship, about finances, materialism, and, and giving, and laying up treasures in heaven. And yet a whole year passed before Titus returned to collect from them what they had promised. Why the year delay? Because for a year they were, they were in rebellion. For a year they were in sin. For one year they were not walking with Christ. So Paul said, forget this giving issue. We have to deal with their hearts first. We don't want your money if you're not walking with Christ. If you're tolerating sin in your church, we don't want your money. We want to deal with these spiritual issues first. And if and only if, if you repent and reconcile to Christ, then we will allow you to partner with us in this giving opportunity. Because grace-motivated giving is first to Christ and then to the church. He didn't want the Corinthians' money if their hearts weren't in it. The Macedonians, their hearts were in. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They were walking with Christ. And so Paul, there was no need for delay. He received their gift. Now, last week when I concluded my sermon, I planned on skipping verse 6. I looked at verse 6. You know, I don't want to ever skip God's word, but you know, we're... We want to preach God's word, but not every verse, not every phrase, clause, verb, every adjective, right? That's not required, mandated by the scriptures. We have, as preachers, license to, you know, a homiletical package, like structure a sermon to, to best teach the Bible. So I'd planned on last Sunday to skip verse 6, and then I studied it this week, and I got stuck on verse 6, and I realized... There's an important principle here uh, that warrants my study and, and our study this morning. Verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Now we know Titus, along with, first, not first, with Timothy, they were ministers under Paul. They were Paul's emissaries, Paul's apostles. Paul was an apostle of Christ. Timothy and Titus were apostles of the apostle Paul. They were sent by Paul with apostolic authority to carry out ministry and and give oversight to the churches that he had delegated to them. So Paul sent Titus to Corinth over a year ago to start this work of giving, to start this work of grace. Now, how did Titus start this work of grace? But just by handing out the collection plate? I mean, Titus is not an uninformed pastor, uninformed spiritual leader. Undoubtedly, he began this work by teaching them, by equipping them, by helping them start the spiritual discipline of giving. And here we find the principle, important principle, that church leaders are responsible to inform, instruct, and equip the church on this issue of stewardship. It's the church leader's responsibility to start this work. We don't wait until, I don't know, just spontaneously something like happens in people's hearts. We don't do that with evangelism. We don't do that with uh, doctrine. We don't do that with Caring for orphans. We don't do that with any anything. We understand we are the leaders. We need to initiate. We need to equip and teach and preach the word. And the body responds likewise in this area as well. It is just like in the family. Raising children. And we don't wait till our kids make money and have them figure out for themselves about finances, about allowance, and about managing their funds or giving to the church. We teach and we equip them. And as we start, we realize there's a lot of work to be done. I, I, I saw this firsthand a few weeks ago. A little break for illustration here. Um, our first daughter, Elizabeth, turned six in April. And so we had a little birthday party. My mom came. And my mom, she's not into buying gifts. She just likes, she likes the 
the old gift card way, right? The green cash, right? <laughs> so she slipped a little bill and gave it to our daughter. Now we are always, like, you know, my grandparents are always giving money, and we're, like, just, you know, forcing them to take it back, but it's just not right to give young children money, like buying their love. They love you anyways. You don't have to buy, buy their love. But it was her birthday, so we let her keep it, and I was shocked to find it was a 20, crisp $20 bill for a six-year-old. Like, we're like, Elizabeth, you're rich. $20. She's like, got one bill. She's like, so Surin asked her, what do you want to do with your $20 bill? And she said, I want to take daddy out on a pho date. Right? <laughs> so I love Vietnamese noodles. And she loves Vietnamese noodles. But she wants to take me out on a date so we can have pho together. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like, I didn't buy my parents a meal until like I was married, I think. <laughs> I, I, I mean, honestly, I, something about first daughters and dads, there's a special relationship, right? I don't expect that from Emma, no. And Ethan, if God allows him to get married, then maybe I'll get a free meal out of him. But you know, first daughters are different. So we planned this whole day. We went out, went to our favorite, you know, Fall House restaurant and Beach Boulevard, and we ordered pho, and we just had a great time. Like, pho is you know, great, right? It's a, you know, I thank God for the Vietnamese people for this <laughs> dish. But when your daughter's paying, buying it for you, it's magic. And there's, there's nothing like free pho that your daughter pays for. So we get the bill, it's like 14.30. I, I told Elizabeth, I'll pay for tip, right? <laughs> the least I can do. So she takes the bill and she pays the lady with a $20 bill and she comes back and she's beaming. Daddy, look, I gave the lady one bill, and she she gives me the bill back with all these coins. So she thinks, like, we ate and we made money after all of this. I realize, oh, that's not how it works, Elizabeth. But she's still too young to explain, understand. So one day I'll explain to her math and money and all of that and how it's not the same thing. So we've got a long way to go in terms of like teaching our children about finances. But likewise in the church as well. I was talking to many of you guys past few weeks, but over the past few years, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of instruction in this area. And it was our fault, our false humility, our pride, our insecurity, our system inadequacy that, that caused us to not directly teach you and equip you in this important area of finances. So that is our hope. Once this LTF, we're committed, we celebrate on the 22nd, we'll venture into maybe a second hour class, maybe a whole retreat devoted to stewardship and finances. But for our time together, I want to study what most likely Titus taught the Corinthians. Now, I'm not sure. I'm interpreting the the white parts of the Bible right now. But... Titus taught the Corinthians a year before this letter was written about finances, about stewardship, about about materialism. Now, what did Titus teach? Now, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we find Paul's letters to these two men to teach them what to teach these churches. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think we find a clue as to what Titus taught the Corinthians in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We find the content of his instructions to the Corinthians. And so for the remainder of our time, we will not go back to 2 Corinthians. We will look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 7 through 10 and 17 through 19. 7 through 10 and 17 through 19. Here, Paul tells Timothy to give specific and direct principles, biblical principles, to two groups of people in the church. There are two kinds of people in the church. Timothy, as my representative, you need to equip them, you need to inform them, instruct them to these two groups. What are these two groups? The first group are are people who want to get rich. And the second group is people who are already rich. Right. So that kind of sums up the church. People who want to get rich, 
and people who are already rich. Now, these principles apply to each and every one of us. If you're honest, you've got to say sin in our flesh and our affluenza culture uh, in Orange County and in U.S. of A. has influenced each and every one of us where there is a desire for us to get rich. I mean, just go to a, to a high school graduation years ago and under each picture they had a little motto, like a phrase that they could put in. And so many of them they were saying how they wanted to be millionaires. They wanted to drive a Ferrari. Right? They wanted to retire at 25. I mean, the aspirations of all these young people was to be rich. Right? No one here can say, I don't think, that, we're, that you're not or I'm not influenced by our, our sin in our flesh or our culture where we're, you know, have no such desire. So these principles to those who want to get rich apply to us. And secondly, the other principles apply to us all the more because all of us here um, are already rich. We are already rich. I think um, I read somewhere 50% of the world, they live daily, their daily uh, living is $2 a day. Compared to that, all of us here, um, we are wealthy beyond imagination for most of the world. Uh, You know, Matthew 6, Christ told the crowds, don't say, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? You know, those questions were literal. For people living at that time, that was a question. Will I eat today? Will I have clothing today or tomorrow? No one here has asked that question in all our lives. We, now our question is, what kind of food should I eat today? Or how much food should I eat today? Should I stop eating already? Right? That's the kind of question that we ask. Or which outfit should I wear among these 20 that I have? Which shoes should I you know, put on? So for us, we are wealthy, we are rich. So these principles apply to us. So... To that end, we want to study um, these passages, verses 7 through 10 and 17 through 19, starting with verse 6, actually. To those who want to get rich, Paul says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. That is true, so the opposite is also true. There is great loss with discontentment. There is great loss. The greatest loss in the history of man came about by way of discontentment. We lost paradise. Adam and Eve were driven out of Garden of Eden because they were discontent. With all that God provided for them, and they were instructed, they were commanded that they could eat everything except one tree. So they should be more than content, satisfied, happy with all that God provided, and yet, because they couldn't have the fruit of the tree, of that one particular tree, their hearts were grumbling and complaining and discontent and caused them to eat of it and sin into the world, and they were driven out of paradise. Ever since then, all children of Eve, their eyes are never satisfied. Unbelievers cannot escape this vice of discontentment. It is a deadly sin with destructive powers. At the same time, it is very subtle. Flies under the radar. In our lives, there are often the smallest idols hidden in our hearts, but have great and deadly influence. Constantly, these idols of our hearts lie to us. If only I had this. If only this prayer was answered, if only this were to happen in my life, I would be content, I would be happy. And it manifests itself in so many ways, discontentment. Uh, Rare is the person that outright confesses that they're discontent. Discontentment of the heart produces fruits. Some of them are self-pity. 
depression, sinful discouragement, grumbling, complaining, being consumed with worry, fear, and anxiety. There's a continual restlessness, just a wishing for different circumstances. So when you're working, you want to be on vacation. When you're on vacation, you want to be working, right? When you're at home, you want to go to work. When you're at work, you want to go play. When you're playing with your friends, you want to play by yourself. I mean, just constant restlessness. You're never satisfied, right? You have this a victim mentality, right? This mindset that you're you're a victim of your circumstances. You're blaming your Parents blaming your friends, blaming your siblings, blaming your boss, blaming global warming. Right? That's the popular one these days. Right? Everything is because of global warming. Right? And you succumb to sinful attempts to relieve the situation. In in its essence, in our hearts, it is rebellion. It is direct rebellion against God. Heart, against God. It's not a a minor. It's not a little sin. It is an affront against God. It's offensive to God because we are saying God has not been good to us. We're saying God is not wise. We're saying in our hearts, right, I'd do a better job managing my own life. God, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. You're not wise. You're not sovereign. You're not good. You're not kind. You're not benevolent. Because if I was in your shoes, my life would be different. I would truly be good. I would truly be wise. I would truly be sovereign. We are saying the gospel is not good enough. The cross is not sufficient. That our happiness, that the cross is not enough for our happiness, for our joy. Ultimately, we want to dethrone God. Ultimately, we're saying, I want to rule. I want to be in charge. I want to make the ultimate decisions. This is what has enslaved all mankind. Right? We know this because we've been there. Right? As believers, we know that this, this snare of discontentment and how it's a trap and it, that, that it's a default state of all mankind and that true contentment is impossible. That is only by the gospel of God, by the grace given to us through His Son's death, that we find true contentment because our, our central need has been met on the cross. We were discontent, we were grumbling, we were full of complaining because sin was our master, and sin was a cruel master, and our burden got heavier and heavier because our, we sinned more and more with each passing day, and our burden, the weight of that burden grew. And, and, and we understood that before God was just, His wrath was awaiting us. And through His, God's cross, this burden of sin has been lifted. Our sins are washed away. We are made righteous. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ because Christ is our Passover lamb. He's our substitute. Therefore, contentment is a possibility for all Christians. Now I say, I chose that word carefully. It's a possibility, not automatic. Contentment is not automatic. Paul said this, right? Philippians 4, 11-13, I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things in Him who gives me strength. Paul had to learn contentment. He had to grow in contentment. Now, what is contentment? I mean, it's, I love this um, definition by Jeremiah Burroughs. If you struggle with contentment, um, Puritan paperback, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, it's worth its weight in gold because of the precious truths that's content, contained within Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And he defines it this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. 
sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to God and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in and every situation. This contentment is deadly. Contentment is to be the pursuit. It's the reality of every Christian, but the pursuit of every Christian as well. It is to be learned. And Paul gives us added incentive. Godliness with contentment is a means to great gain. Godliness with contentment produces spiritual riches. So all the more believers living in this fallen world, we ought not resign ourselves and surrender to our temptation of being discontent. We should pursue contentment because we gain. There's great things to be gained by contentment. Some things we gain through contentment is a clear conscience. A clear conscience. Psalm thirty-seven, sixteen: Better little with the righteous than the wealth with the wicked. Proverbs fifteen sixteen: Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Contentment grants to us freedom from fear and anxiety. Freedom from worry. Matthew six thirty one through thirty four. Do not worry, saying, "What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear?" The pagans run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble of its own. Frees us from that. Liberates us. The ensnaring bondage of worry and fear grants us courage and confidence even in the midst of suffering and loss. Romans 8.28 For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His good purpose. And we're content, we're acknowledging God's sovereignty and so no matter what happens in life we can respond by faith. Finally, produces true satisfaction. True satisfaction. Uh, Ecclesiastes two twenty two through twenty four. Ecclesiastes two twenty two through twenty four. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days. His work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This is from the hand of God. This kind of satisfaction in one's lot in life. One's satisfaction in his work. His life under this uh, S-U-N, under the sun. His contentment is from only from the hand of God. So Paul calls us to pursue after contentment because there is great gain. And then he gives to us in verse 7 the foundation of contentment. The foundation of contentment. It's having clear sight of the rear view mirror and the front window. Right? A good driver or someone, every, what, 20 seconds, looks at the rearview mirror, but keeps his eyes on the front window and looks forward. Having clear sight is the foundation of contentment. Paul reminds us of this fundamental truth that we often ignore. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. We need to look back, all the way back, the day of our birth, and realize, understand, be reminded, we brought nothing into this world. We came with empty hands. And also look forward to that, all the way forward, beyond retirement, and we'll leave this world, and know that we're going to leave this world 
with nothing in our hands. Job said this, Job 121, naked I came, naked I will depart. In respect to earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. A pastor presided over the funeral of a wealthy lady. Someone asked, how much did she leave behind? He answered, she left everything behind. What are you talking about? She left everything behind. In light of this, we should be content. That's the foundation. Knowing our past, knowing our future, and knowing the extent of true contentment is verse 8. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That's for us, if we have food and clothing. Contentment is, that's the extent of contentment. I'll be content long as I can have, you know, I don't know, right, this three weeks of vacation a year at this resort. Long as I have, you know, this kind of car. I have this much in my bank account. I have this kind of house, uh, you know, purse, shoes, I don't know, basketball shoes for the guys, whatever, right? Then I'll be content. Anything less, I'm dis- I have a right to be discontent. The extent of true contentment is if I have food and clothing, we will be content. That's what Christ tells us to pray for in Matthew 6.11. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. And then he shifts gears here to those who want to be rich. And he doesn't forbid it, but he, as a good shepherd, warns them. Look at verse 9. How those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is not just Paul's warning. This warning of wanting to be rich, loving money, is replete throughout the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 5.10, we are warned that love of money is addictive. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Never satisfied. Solomon warns us that material wealth has no spiritual value. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? And that these things of the world robs a man of peace and rest. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. We understand that, right? I remember when I was in college, I had this old Oldsmobile Cutlass, right? Sierra or something, right? At like 80,000 miles, I was driving with Billy Pio one day at campus at Long Beach State, went over a speed bump, the f- whole front panel popped open, <laughs> right? And like, Billy kind of screamed like a girl a little bit, but <laughs> calm down, Billy, it's okay, I'm in control. I love that car because I could park that car anywhere and it didn't matter, right? I had no, I never lost sleep over that car. One time I was driving the 605 and this like a panel of another car flew over and hit my car right in the middle of the hood. No care in the world, right? (laughs) It looks better actually, right? Uh, My next car was a used Jeep CJ7 and one day it got stolen from the parking lot at Cal State Long Beach and a few days later uh, the police called, they found it, uh, and, they, and when I got to pick it up, they were saying, oh man, they messed up your Jeep, they stripped, stripped it, they, they took all these things out, you know, I'm sorry. And I went to the Jeep and I said, oh, that's the way it was. <laughs> no worries here. They took my battery, I replaced the battery, it was all good. All right. All right. We understand that, right? Harmful temptations. Right, desire to be rich, how, how that turns into a snare, senseless, harmful desires, plunge people into ruin and destruction. And ultimately, verse 10, 
because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right? And we need to, to quote that verse accurately. Money is not evil. Right? I have money in my pocket right now. Right? I'm going to use that money to eat this afternoon. You have money in your wallets right now, your purse. Money is not evil. Right? Uh, money can be a good thing, useful for uh, good things. It's the love of money. Right? It's the source of all kinds of evil. A long list of evils are produced by this lo- love of money. Right? A long list, a laundry list. Selfishness, fraud, deception, envy, hatred, physical violence, murder, theft, betrayal of family and friends, so on and on and on, are fruits of loving money. Paul could have dealt with all these fruits, but he just focuses on two things. First of all, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. They've went astray. Why? Because Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one, love the other, you will love the one, hate the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and mammon, and mammon is wealth. It is money. You cannot love both. Right. We, are, we are loyal to one in our hearts. Either we love God and we don't love money, or we love money and we are haters of God. And secondly, they have pierced themselves with many griefs, many sorrows. And I've seen this firsthand, and if you've been in our church long enough, you've seen this firsthand. Or we've had people in our church that just drop out and disappear, and they are just living in sin. And I meet with them. And I, I want something like dramatic. I want to discover like something like horrendous or horrific or something like interesting like they're a secret agent or something right and they came to their senses and found out their true identity I want something like really something I could use for a sermon and it's so so mundane it's just money you know like possessions wealth like things in this world and it's so it's just a letdown like you like shipwrecked your faith you marred your reputation, you undermine the testimony of the gospel for, for like a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars? I mean, come on, does that make any sense? It doesn't. But that's why Paul warns against it. Because it is that love of money that deceives us and leads us to even shipwreck our faith, pierce themselves with many griefs, many sorrows, these principles were given to those who want to be rich. Now, you want to be rich, Paul, the Bible doesn't forbid you to strive after wealth. But rightfully so, sobers us. It helps us to think rightly and shepherd our own hearts. To understand, it's not as the world portray it. You know, it's all, it's all rosy colored, you know, rosy view of wealth. There's a cost, and we must be mindful of that, lest we succumb to its um, temptations. Next, starting in verse 17, he gives commands to those who are already rich. He commands to those who are already rich. Verse 17, as as for the rich in in this present age, he gives, first of all, negative commands, the first one is, do not be haughty. Do not be conceited. Do not be arrogant. Do not be proud. Don't think that you're rich because you're special. God give you money as a sign of blessing. I know. That's, that's wrong doctrine. Being rich is not a sign. It, it can be, but it can be a sign of God's curse. There are many rich nations that are haters of God. They're in utter rebellion against God. So for us to think that being rich... Having wealth is because of it's God's blessing to us and because we're special, because we deserve it, is utterly inconsistent with the scriptures. You must understand that if you're wealthy, it's by grace. Right? We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, we didn't work for it. If you're you know you're rich because you're you know you got into a good school, know that you got into a good school because you're smart, but you're smart 
not because you achieved it on your own. God gave you that intelligence. By grace, undeservedly. If you have some special ability where you are of value to our society and therefore warrant certain kind of pay, understand that ability was not achieved by you and I apart from God. It was given to us by grace. We have nothing to boast about. All we did was receive from God these gifts. We must not, as Moses warned in Deuteronomy eight seventeen through 18, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Moses warned the Israelites, remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It is He. It is exceedingly difficult to be wealthy and have a humble spirit. But we must, with all our might, strive after it. This pride left unchecked could cause us to deny Christ. And we don't need a greater example than the rich young ruler of Matthew 19. Here Christ called him to follow him. The great, right, to be the disciple of Christ. And this idiot rejected Christ's offer because he had a few dollars in his account. What a fool. What a fool. So the first instruction Paul gives is do not be proud. Second, do not put your hope in your wealth. Wealth produces false pride and produces false security. Temptation is to depend on money, bank account, house, stocks, job. Paul reminds us that all these things are uncertain. I mean, failure of the dot-com boom and the current uh, downturn in the housing market should jolt us away. That we can't trust riches for personal security. We can't hope in wealth. We must remember Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Threefold negative in the Greek. Never, ever, ever will I leave you. I should be the source of your security. Your confidence should be because I'm with you. Not because number of zeros in your bank account. And then he turns to positive commands. Positive commands. First of all, do good. With your money, do good. With your wealth, do what is inherently, intrinsically, and qualitatively good. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Do not become weary in doing good, for you will reap a harvest. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Secondly, be rich in good deeds not be rich merely in terms of your finance, but be rich in good works. Cause for a proportional relationship between your wealth and your good deeds. God has entrusted you with much more is demanded. There's a proportional expectation that God has placed on us in light of what He has granted to us. Third, be generous. Be generous. Fourthly, be willing to share. Right. Romans twelve thirteen. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Let's go to verse 19. And it closes for us perfectly. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly Life. Here in verse 19, Paul takes the metaphor of wealth and extends it eschatologically to the end times, the eschaton, the coming age, the kingdom that is to come and our eternity in heaven. He motivates the readers and motivates us 
to be generous, to do good, to abound in good deeds, to share, because it ultimately benefits us. Give, because more will be added on to you. When believers are doing good, rich in good works, generous, ready to share, they are, Paul says, laying up, storing up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So, laying the foundation has two meanings here. Now, we're laying the foundation for a building for gospel and ministry. But each of us, we're laying our own foundation for our future spiritual building in eternity with with God, in heaven with God. We're laying up treasure and laying the foundation for ourselves. What we see is the material giving and the building here. But what the Bible promises to us and teaches us about the coming age that we do not see is that we're investing in a future foundation for, that we will use for ourselves. That is for our benefit. Money and wealth are means to ministry here. But more than that, it is a means of exalted and greater happiness and honor in heaven. So, if death is the end, then we should all be materialistic. We should all strive after wealth and spend it and buy as many toys as we can. Spending has a theology behind it. In fact, social scientists, I just read this in an article in the Week magazine this uh, this past week. It was saying how during times of calamity, uh, um, frivolous spending actually goes up. Uh, After 9-11, Anthony Chandler, he is uh, the manager at Fletcher Jones Motor Cars in Newport Beach, he said, on that day, they sold 14 Mercedes that day alone. Right. They averaged about five on a Tuesday. Right. Since then, as the Department of Homeland Security issues the occasional orange alert, business booms. Right. Spending goes up when people think the end is near. Why? The theology is life ends, everything ends at death. So if we're going to die, let's spend more money. That's the theology behind it. But for Christians, we understand that death is not the end. That we're just pilgrims, right? aliens and exiles, journeying through temporarily here where our eternity is in heaven. So Christ and Paul implores us to lay our treasures in heaven and lay it up for ourselves in the future by giving today temporarily what belongs to us. The illustration is old, but quite helpful. It's the idea of you're in a motel room for two weeks and you have $50,000. And you can choose to spend that 50000 to renovate your motel room. You want travertine tiles, right? You want plasma screen. You want a feather bed, right? You want curtains. You want to renovate the bathroom and a whole new kitchen. And you want to spend everything, your new furniture on this motel room. Or you could spend that money to set a foundation for your home that you will live in with your family after that two weeks. Come on, that's like elementary. Even my daughter Elizabeth will understand how to best allocate money. It's just two weeks in a motel room, right? Don't invest any money here. Just two weeks. As much as we can, let's lay aside that money for our home that will stay long-term, much better, much wiser uh, stewardship. That's what... Christ is saying, that's what Paul is saying in verse 19. Right? Do not waste money here. Right? But lay up for yourselves, Matthew 6, treasures on earth 
And then he gives us added incentive for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So a practical way to use money to aid us in our pursuit of Christ. Practical way to use wealth to aid us in our sanctification and our pursuit of holiness by laying it up for our foundation in the coming age. Let me give you uh, seven just quick tips on cultivating contentment, pursuing contentment, a game plan, if you will, for those who want to be rich and those who are rich to pursue and cultivate contentment to close our time. First of all, immerse your mind in the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The most relevant doctrine there is. It's the first doctrine. Puritans discovered God's sovereignty. They never got over it. And that should be our testimony as well. And you think it's irrelevant. It's directly tied to our contentment and discontentment. Immerse your mind in studying the doctrine of God's sovereignty. There are many great books written by godly men on the subject. Immerse your mind. Bathe your mind. Renew your mind with this truth. Secondly, delight yourself in God and the spiritual blessings that comes with the cross of Christ. Delight yourself in the gospel. Delight yourself in all these things that are free. Delight yourself in Christian fellowship, in prayer, in singing, in reading the Bible, in ministry, in serving. All these things are free and therefore are enjoyment. So delight yourself in these things. Charles Spurgeon said, There never was a Christian man that was too happy in God. There never was such a man. Be happy in Christ. Thirdly, distinguish between wants from needs. What are your wants and what are your needs? So, pray for needs, not wants. Wants are God's gifts to us. Needs are God's promises to us. Pray for needs, and if we have our needs, be content. Be content. Fourthly, have a clear sight of the rearview mirror and the front window. Remember the day of your birth and remember, call to mind the day of your death. We came with nothing and we're going to leave everything. That's what oppressed Solomon. All his wealth, he's going to give it to people that didn't work for it. And that was oppressive to him. Because led astray by the temptations of this world, he was living for this world. Be mindful of how we will leave this world. Fifthly, recall to mind that our Lord owns everything. He is our master. We don't, we're, we're, if I do share responsibility, right? What we have, even our lives, doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Sixthly, cultivate a thankful heart. Right? Cultivate a thankful heart. It's not natural. It's not automatic. We need to work at it. Train our children to be thankful. Right? Have a culture of thanksgiving in the family. And in our own hearts, cultivate gratitude. And finally, lay up for yourselves a firm foundation in the coming age by doing good being rich in good works, by being generous, and by being ready to share. We enjoy lightly here, but we'll enjoy fully in the coming age. That is a time for us to truly enjoy all that God has given to us. That will only happen if we lay it out for ourselves in God's kingdom. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for these um, sobering instructions, these commands, these truths. They are so good for our hearts. We are so prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love because of our sin in the flesh and because of the world that we live in. We are bombarded on all sides 
They lie to us, promising us pleasure and joy and satisfaction by material things. Lord, we pray that your glory, your beauty would outshine them all and aided by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures, you would constrain our hearts to you and cause us to see beyond the facade of, of, of today to see the reality that is to come. We pray that your, your grace will work mightily in our hearts to this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.